100 years ago today, at 8am on Monday the 11th of April 1921, workers on their way to Dublin docks witnessed an audacious bomb attack by the IRA. Their target was a unit of auxiliaries based at the London Northwestern Railway Hotel on North Wall Quay. To mark the centenary of this event, the East Wall History Group have produced a documentary called War and Peace in a Docklands Hotel, which premiered online earlier today. I'm joined now by two guests, Joe Mooney of the East Wall History Group and historian Liz Gillis. And Joe, the, the documentary covers not just this particular IRA attack, but also the considerable history that's attached to this building. Just give us an idea, locate it for us if you would, um, and, and tell us what exactly the London Northwestern Railway Hotel was and where it fitted into the, uh, the life of the Docklands. Okay, so the documentary is called War and Peace in the Docklands Hotel, and while we are marking the centenary of the attack, we are also looking at the hotel in peacetime. It has a fascinating history and really it's it's really central to the development of Dublin Port and the North Docklands area. The London and North Western Railway was a British-based company. They had a network all over England and in the mid-1800s they decided it would be financially beneficial to spread our operations to Ireland and to Dublin. So they already had a mail contract in England, they would bring the mail to uh, Holyhead and they would pass it over and it'd be sent over to Ireland. They had their own sorting offices, etc., on the trains, and as the trains went around England, they would pick up the mail, sort it, drop it off at Holyhead. They realised it'd be very profitable if they could actually get involved in the operation once they made it to Ireland. But significantly, there was major discussions on relocating the cattle market in Dublin to the Docklands area. The LNWR realised that the cross-channel transportation of cattle was a hugely profitable business and they wanted to get into it. So they built the, um, the, the London and North Western Rail Station at North Wall Quay. Once they're there, the Docklands area is developing. As it happens, the cattle market doesn't move to the Docklands the way it was proposed, but there's still cattle coming through. So the, the London and North Western Railway set themselves up with the cattle business in North Wall once they have the station, they realise there's great potential here. So they invest majorly in rail infrastructure. So what happens is, if you're in, in England, you can travel on the LNWR all over the country. They then invest in a fleet of ships, which you can then travel to Dublin on. And from the London and North Western Rail uh, Station in North Wall Quay, they develop links with Amiens Street. They invest in the, the Phoenix Park Underground Tunnel. So basically, once you get the North Wall from their station, you can link up to other rail stations in Dublin and travel to anywhere in the country. The, the hotel itself, though, wasn't just your average hotel. If you were staying in the LNWR hotel, you were in the lap of luxury, weren't you? Yes, the LNWR hotel was a luxury hotel. Once the LNWR have established their rail station in Dublin, they realise the potential that they're sitting on and they buy up the hotel which was adjacent to them, the Prince of Wales Hotel. That wasn't a luxury hotel, it was a nice hotel, but they transform it majorly and create a luxury hotel. And with their luxury hotel there then, they really realise the tourist potential of what they're sitting on. And they set up a tourist trail which can take you from London all the way across England and bring you to Dublin. They build a walkway from the ships to the hotel and the station, so you don't even have to torch the dirty ground of the Dublin docks if you don't want to, and you can go into the luxury hotel. 
From the hotel, there's a link to the station. So you, again, you don't even have to touch the dirty cobbles of Dublin. You can go across to the station and travel to anywhere in Ireland. They invest majorly in the tourist trade. They link up with stations all over the country. They start producing um, their own booklets. They produce their own postcards of key locations around the country that people might want to travel to. They tie it in with the English person's knowledge of Ireland. So if there's a royal visit to any part of Ireland, that becomes part of the tourist trail they recommend. The songs of uh, Thomas More are really popular. Uh, Thomas More's songbook is a major seller. So places he mentions in the songs, the meeting of the waters, etc., become tourist destinations through the LNWR. And the hotel gets a reputation for luxury. They have a reputation for fine food, fine wines, and even um, James Joyce is supposed to have come down there because they had a very nice cup of coffee. They produce picnic baskets. So if you come in from England and um, you want to just continue on your journey, you're not going to stay in the hotel, you can go over and you can collect your uh, picnic basket, which you can take on the next step of your journey. So it's really a luxury experience, and it's kind of not what you would really be associating with the Dublin Docklands. When you think of the hustle and bustle of the cargo, the dockers, the characters and all that, the idea that there's a luxury hotel sitting in the middle of that is incredible. And when we're looking at the idea of promoting tourism across the country and turning the Docklands into a tourist destination, you're really only doing what was done 150, 160 years ago. What was its connection then with the Easter Rising? Easter Monday 1916, at midday of course, the uh, Republic is proclaimed. Once the news of what's happening in Dublin starts getting out to, to the British authorities, they don't know what's going on. They don't know whether the rising is all over the country. They don't know what they're facing. And suddenly, the Dublin Docklands becomes a major priority. They realise that with the LNWR rail network there, that if you bring troops in from England, you can get them onto Northwall Quay, get them into the station, and the trains can take them anywhere in Dublin. So capturing the Docklands area becomes a priority for the British. The largest body of troops that are instantly available are at Dollymount in the musketry school in Dollymount. And they're marched down to the Docklands. They have a brief firefight at Ansley Bridge. But very quickly, by the afternoon on Easter Monday, they've taken over um, the London and North Western Rail Hotel and the lands around it. So what you have in the hotel during Easter week, you have Major Somerville from the musketry school takes up command there. They set up a field hospital adjacent to the hotel. But in addition to the troops, you also have guests who were hoping to travel back to England. It was an Easter weekend, of course. So you have people who are waiting to travel out of the country. The shipping has stopped. So you have a load of guests stuck in the hotel. You have the British military taking up occupation. And they very quickly become the target for snipers and from tax in the area from Sheriff Street, from the railway. The hotel comes under attack. It comes under attack from across the river. So you have guests in there, you have soldiers having their dinner, the food starts to run out during the week and you have the windows being shut in regularly. And just to add to the, the eccentric mix that you have in the hotel during the week, you have a number of war correspondents who arrive from England. These guys were destined for France and Belgium to cover um, events in the Great War. They hear what's happening in Dublin and they get dispatched to Dublin. They arrive on Northwall Quay. The area is cordoned off from the rest of the city, so they can't get out. So they end up staying for a couple of days in the London and North Western Rail Hotel. And from there, they do little excursions into the area, which for us, from a historical point of view, is great because you get an eyewitness account of what was going on in the Docklands area from these reporters. But they also get to see some great sights. One of them is invited up on the roof by uh, a British officer 
who tells him to come up, he's going to see something, and he gets to see the Helga lobbing shells into the South Dock. And one journalist makes a great comment, he says something like, where else would you get it that you can sit in a hotel and just by looking through your curtains you can see revolutionary history in action? So it becomes, like again, almost like an eccentric part of what's going on in the East Horizon, a kind of quirky story. And um, during the week, the hotel manager, Clara Harris, and 14 staff stay on duty for the entire week. And on one of the days, they apologise that the, the quality of the food is not quite as good as what would normally be expected. But there is fish on the menu because some of the ships coming in with troops are catching Pollock, I think it is, on the way over in nets. And they're bringing that to the hotel so they can have fish. And she assures them that the, the wine cellar is fully stocked and as good as ever. Liz, the ambush took place a century ago. Put it in context for us, if you would. What was the situation with the conflict in Dublin at that time? Was there any sense, any indication, as we know now, that the conflict was actually coming to an end fairly soon? Uh, no, Miles, it was actually escalating on, on both sides. The year 1921 had started pretty badly for the IRA and certainly by March it did look like the Crown forces were gaining the upper hand. If you look at what happened at the start of the year, the IRA losses, you had the Clan Multan Bush, you had the Dripsian Bush, there were a number of IRA men had been executed in Cork and the authorities were actually ramping up the executions. And that had been the case back in autumn 1920 when it looked like the British were making inroads, that they were getting the upper hand, but then the IRA hit back and marches the turning point. You had the active service unit of the Dublin Brigade set up. Now you had the flying columns around the, the country, but in Dublin they were really part-time volunteers. So they set up the active service unit, a full-time dedicated unit of about 50 men who their only aim was to take the fight to the enemy, attack them at every opportunity. And um, there was a section for each of the Dublin battalions. So they're out in force and then... You have the executions on the 14th of March of the six IRA men in Mountjoy Jail. And that evening, the IRA were told to go out on the attack. And you just see an increase in the attacks from all of the battalions of the Southern Brigade. So it didn't seem like it was going to end anytime soon. And Joe, what was a unit of the auxiliaries doing stationed in this hotel in April of 1921? So the 21st of March 1921, Q Company of the Auxiliaries gets posted to the Dublin Docklands and they're barracked at the LNWR Hotel. Q Company is set up for the purpose of intercepting weapons, munitions, explosives, suspicious persons, messages, etc. that are used in the docks as a base. Of course, it makes a lot of sense going back to the early days of James Connolly and the Citizen Army, the, the Dublin docks became a centre of weapons smuggling for the Republican movement. So in the previous years, there's weapons coming in constantly. Practically every ship that's coming and going has some element of Republican supporters amongst the crew, either on the ships or on the docks. They're bringing in weapons. They're smuggling people out who are wanted. So with the escalation that Liz has just talked about, um, it's decided to base Q Company directly on the Northwall Quay and their job will be to search every single ship coming and going to intercept wherever they can and neutralise the IRA in Dublin. 
they're not there for long before the IRA hits them. What was the plan on that day, on the 11th of April, when the attack on the hotel took place? Okay, so with the arrival of Q Company on Northwall Quay, I mean, this is a this is an affront to the IRA in Dublin. This is part of their heartland. This is a key operation zone for them, and with the auxiliaries uh, based on the key, able to service every ship, it's going to damage their capability to pursue the war, uh, which, as Liz has explained, is escalating. Q Company's brag is that um, we shall have a complete stranglehold of the traffic in munitions. And that's their aim, and that's what they're, they're hoping to do by being based at Northwall. So what happens is, straight away, the IRA have to respond. An order is given straight away that uh, this base has to be attacked, and within three weeks of the arrival, the operation is carried out. The IRA would have had fairly strong roots in the North Docklands community historically. Um, the Citizen Army and the volunteers were quite strong in the area, so they've been rooted in the area for many years. It's a very, very tight-knit community. Everybody works together, everybody lives together, and there's a huge crossover. Everybody knows each other. So when they decide to carry out the attack, it's only three weeks between them arriving and the attack taking place, but they're very quickly able to put a major plan in place to launch a very precise a very well-timed and what is hoped to be a devastating attack. They're able to use the local knowledge to great effect. And something people need to remember, when you think of the Dublin docks now, there was no bridges between the Custom House and the Keys. The Custom House was the last bridge along. So once you went past there, you were using the road or the river to travel. So the plan for the 2nd Battalion of the IRA under Tom Ennis, in relation to the auxiliaries based at the hotel, is... They're going to launch a full frontal assault on the hotel. They're going to attack the front of the hotel with gunfire. They're going to attack the sides of the hotel with grenades, gas bombs, and they're also going to take up positions to the rear and on neighbouring buildings. And they're basically going to pour fire into the building. The overall plan is that by attacking the building as the Grenades go through the windows as the smoke bombs and gas bombs go through the windows. The auxiliaries will be rushed, will rush to the front of the building to regroup. And they're going to move a very large landmine in a cart up to the front of the building. So as the auxiliaries gather at the front, the mine will detonate. And the plan is that there'll be massive casualties and the possibility even of bringing down the front of the building. Now, where the local knowledge really comes into place is how they're going to do this. The auxiliaries are probably the cream of the crop of the British troops in Ireland. They're here for the one and only purpose is to beat the IRA militarily. They're all ex-military. They've all got war experience. And the IRA know taking them on in a straight fight is very difficult. They're going to do it at the hotel, but they're not going to take any chances. And they block off the entire docklands around them. They use their local knowledge to obstruct the bridges at Spencer Dock. There's lifting bridges to allow ships to get access from the Liffey into Spencer Dock. They're going to lift both of those bridges so vehicles can come down. Further along at Lower Sheriff Street, there's another bridge. They're going to open that, which is going to close that area off. And at Newcomen Bridge in the North Strand and at Ansley Bridge on Eastwall Road, they're going to set up barricades and push support parties in to attack any reinforcements coming in. The attack is timed for 8 o'clock in the morning. 
again, this is where the local knowledge and the knowledge of the workings of the docks is really important because 8 o'clock is a shift change. So you have ships on the quays loading and unloading. You have dockers coming and going to work. You have carters, etc., coming up and down. And on Monday, there's no passenger ships come in. So they know there's going to be no hapless civilians caught up in the activity when it takes place. So this is all put into place. At 10 to 8 in the morning, the bridges are open. No more access can come in. And at 8 o'clock, a number of men dressed as dockers, they possibly were dockers, they might have gone into work afterwards, walk up to the front of the building and shoot the sentry there, and the attack is on. Uh, so then tell us how the attack actually goes, because, let's face it, it wasn't the most successful IRA assault in the history of the War of Independence, was it? No, and I think that that's the thing about this attack. In some ways, it's certainly overshadowed by what happened afterwards, which was the burning of the Custom House. But it's often forgotten about, and I think part of the reason is that it didn't succeed the way it planned. Again, it was meticulously planned... It was timed absolutely perfect, but what really tripped up the the operation or what made sure it didn't succeed was the failure of munitions. And this was a persistent problem that the Republican movement had faced uh, in the War of Independence. At this time in Dublin, the IRA were operating a number of their own bomb factories. They were manufacturing their own munitions. They were manufacturing possibly a thousand grenades a week. But the problem is a lot of them wouldn't work as planned and a lot of their explosives around the country and in Dublin wouldn't detonate as proposed. So what happens is at 8 o'clock the attack is launched. It all goes exactly as Tom Ennis etc who's commanding the operation has planned. They open fire on the building, they throw in their grenades, they throw in phosphorus bombs which create a noxious gas and starts filling the hotel. But a lot of the grenades they throw in don't actually detonate. And what happens is one of the auxiliary commanders is running down the stairs uh, mobilising men and he actually gets hit with a grenade so hard it knocks him over and his hat comes off. He falls on the ground and it lands beside him and sits there does nothing. He gets up, regroups. The auxiliaries do mobilise towards the front of the building. When Tom Ennis realises this is going the way they wanted it, he orders the mine to be lit. They light the fuse on the mine and nothing happens. The mine doesn't detonate. So 20 minutes of a fierce firefight, Tom Ennis blows the whistle and the men start to withdraw. Despite the failure of munitions there to do what they were meant to do, the operation is so well planned that in a firefight of the intensity that they're engaged in for 20 minutes, they reckon up to 70 attackers were involved in the overall attack. There's only one casualty. An IRA man is shot outside, he stands up to throw a grenade in and he gets shot in the face. That's the only casualty. The IRA use the barrels that have gathered up around the keys, they turn them on their side and they start pushing them forward like something you'd see in a cowboy movie and start shooting from behind them. All the windows of the hotel are shot up, but once they give the order to withdraw, they withdraw fully. They back away up the keys, of course no one has got down because the bridges are open. They go out across the rail lines, which they'd know very well, and they disappear in the streets around it. The auxiliaries give chase very briefly, realise it's not a good idea, they don't know whether they're walking themselves into further ambushes, and back away. And aside from that one casualty, everybody involved in their operation gets away, despite the intensity and despite what they're up against. Uh, Liz, tell me about the newspapers of the time. How did they report the attack? 
On the, in the days following, Miles, the newspapers are, are full of accounts of the attack and really, really dramatic. Like it's it's thrilling actually when you're reading them. It's like you're there. It's minute by minute accounts and like really dramatic headlines. And they mentioned the fact that the IRA used gas bombs and they had manufactured gas bombs and they were used in the attack. And, you know, I suppose that adds to the horror because the recent memory of gas being used in the First World War and so on. They use uh, terms like, um, you know, it was an attack of a very determined nature. Also describing vividly what the scenes were like, that the pungent odour of gas was everywhere. But also sort of reflecting on the determination on the Republicans who attacked because they do say that the attack was carried out with example Kuna. So it's like they're sort of saying that it's a, a military force that has been involved in this attack against the auxiliaries. But then there's some sort of um, humorous descriptions um, because some of the auxiliaries had come in from patrol Others were still in bed when the attack opened. And one thing that the, the auxiliaries, what this what makes them so distinctive was the Glengarry caps. And those in the pyjamas just grabbed their caps and started fighting. But they report in the newspapers then, you know, that a number of the aux- auxiliaries fall in their pyjamas. So you just have, you know, you've seen the photographs of the auxiliaries, fearless men and arms to the teeth. But then just get this picture of auxiliaries fighting in their pyjamas with, with a Glengarry cap on them. <laughs> so they report everything in detail. Uh, Joe, tell us about the documentary. How did it come about? Uh, how, how did you actually make it? With, with this being the centenary year, it was something that we've, um, we would have looked forward to like in recent years. We've done a lot of work around, of course, the 1916 rise and the 1913 lockout. And we would have seen this um, this event as something we would have looked forward to commemorating. But of course, with the year that's in it and the, with COVID, uh, we, we couldn't do it the way we would have liked it. And like everybody else in the last year, we've learned the power of uh, having Zoom meetings and producing our own videos. So it's something we started to do to make up for the fact that we can't have live events. So... We decided the best way to approach this would be to make a short documentary about it and with funding from Dublin City Council's uh, Decade Commemorations Fund who very generously funded it, we've got two young um, filmmakers, um, Louis Maxwell and Connor Forkin and we asked them to make this documentary for us. So um, as I mentioned earlier, it's called War and Peace in the Docklands Hotel. It was very important to obviously commemorate the attack of 100 years ago but we also thought with so much of the Docklands history disappearing and so little to see when you go down North Wall Quay to actually remind you what life was like there, we thought it was important to also cover the much longer history of the hotel and bits of history of the local area. So the documentary covers the development of the hotel, the development of the tourist industry in the hotel and also, of course, the attack. And we have Derek Molyneux, um, the author of a number of books on the revolutionary period is featured. He describes the attack in great detail. And Liz also makes an appearance where she um, describes the overall context in relation to what was going to come next, which was the burning of the custom house. So it's available on the East Wall History Group Facebook page and on the East Wall History Group YouTube page. We'll put links 
to both of those on our own website. The documentary is called War and Peace in a Docklands Hotel. It tells the story, as Joe says, not just of an attack that took place 100 years ago today, but the social history of a working class community in the heart of Dublin City. Joe Mooney and Liz Gillis, thank you both very much for joining us this evening. Thank you.